Welcome back to Pastorally Correct. I'm Chris McLaughlin, and today we're going to live up to our description to our podcast where we're going to talk about contemporary headlines, both related to Christian ministry as well as some headlines related to our ongoing cultural conflicts. And so today we're going to sound a little bit like a Sesame Street episode in that we are going to talk about the number one, as in issue one in Ohio, and the provocative claim from a Christian blog that there is one thing that could resolve most problems in in every church. Now, first, we're going to talk about election night. On Tuesday night, it was election night here in the state of Pennsylvania, where we voted on judges and some local issues, as well as for school board members. And so it was a night that was important for those who were voting. And yet the biggest news did not come from the state of Pennsylvania, but from our neighbor over in Ohio, where issue one was being considered. Now, there were two issues of significant cultural value that demonstrated the the values that our society maintains and uh, could provide a basis for cultural analysis, uh, issues one and two, but for the sake of time today, we're going to focus on issue one. Uh, And regarding issue one, I'm going to read from an article from the Akron Beacon Journal that was published on October 16th, and it reads, on November 7th, Ohioans will vote on abortion, contraceptive, contraception, and other reproductive decisions. And so then from there, it provides the text of issue one. And I thought it was important to read the text of this issue that was brought before the voters of the state of Ohio on Tuesday evening. It says, Article 1, Section 22, the right to reproductive freedom with protections for health and safety. And it has just a few articles to it or subletters. It says, Every individual has a right to make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions, including but not limited to decisions on contraception, fertility, fertility treatment, continuing one's pregnancy, miscarriage care, and abortion. And the state shall not directly or indirectly burden, penalize, prohibit, interfere with, or discriminate against either an individual's voluntary exercise of this right or a person or entity that assists an individual exercising this right unless the state demonstrates that it is using the least restrictive means to advance the individual's health in accordance with widely accepted and evidence-based standards of care. However, abortion may be prohibited after fetal viability. But in no case may such an abortion be prohibited if in the professional judgment of the pregnant patient's treating physician it is necessary to protect the pregnant patient's life or health. C. As used in this section, fetal viability, in quotes, means, and this is a quote, the point in a pregnancy when, in the professional judgment of a pregnant patient's treating physician, the fetus has a significant likelihood of survival outside the uterus with reasonable measures. This is determined on a case-by-case basis. State, it puts in quotes, includes any governmental entity and any political subdivision. And Article D or subsection D. This section is self-executing. This was an issue that was voted on by the uh, by the people in the state of Ohio, and it was affirmed. It was uh, uh, voted uh, for, and so it, it did pass. And we found this to be catastrophic as pro-life believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. And so it is a topic that has a lot of gravity. It caused a lot of ripples in the political realm where there were a lot of questions 
following the passage of issue one in Ohio were people wondering if abortion is a winning issue for, for instance, for instance, the Democratic Party, if it is a losing issue for the Republican Party, if it's a platform that politicians must run on moving forward, if if people who are pro-life need to abandon this cause because we have now lost the cultural battle and the conversation on uh, the worldview assumptions and beliefs corresponding with a pro-life uh, conviction. And so these were the sort of ideas and conversations that were being had on talk shows and news publications and so on and so forth. But as we look at this article, there are a few things that I want to discuss today. As I read this, uh, I do note that it is a catastrophe. I grieve over the way that the people in the state of Ohio have voted. I believe that there has been misinformation that has been given regarding abortion, regarding human rights. I believe that there is a philosophy, a secular ideology that is pushed upon the baby in the womb, the person in the womb, and it results in a grave moral evil wherein we see uh, so many babies killed in the womb. These are people made in the image of God from conception until natural death, and we, as followers of Jesus Christ, ought to contend for their rights. With that stated, as I was reading through this, there was something that really jumped off the page at me, and that was uh, letter B. It says, the state shall not directly or indirectly burden, penalize, prohibit, interfere with, or discriminate against either an individual's voluntary exercise of this right a person or entity that assists an individual exercising this right unless the state demonstrates that it is using the least restrictive means to advance the individual's health in accordance with widely accepted and evidence-based standards of care. Well, somebody might read that and, and wonder, why wouldn't the state refrain from getting involved? And the answer to that given by the pro-choice movement would be that the state doesn't have a valid interest in this discussion. It is a personal matter. This is the way that it is often communicated. It is a personal matter between a woman and her doctor. At least that's the way that it used to be communicated until the people who are advocates for this sort of worldview and these sort of arguments abandoned the ability to define what a woman is at all. And so today it is simply just a, a personal matter between a pregnant individual or a person, a birthing person, and a and a health provider. We ought to push back on, on language like this because it abandons anything resembling objective reality. But today, this is propped up as a personal matter. And this is where the abortion advocate outright lies. This is not a personal discussion. This is a matter of public policy. It reflects what our society considers to be the good or the ideal, and it overlaps significantly with health concerns, restrictions, and guidelines. It imposes a philosophical construct on the body that demeans it, and it leads to human suffering. With this, there are a few principles that I think we can establish today. One, the state should contend for the rights of all people. We understand that as American citizens, that there are rights that the founders recognized as being inalienable rights. They are not rights that are given to us by a state. They are rights that we possess simply on the basis that we were created in the image of God Almighty. The state has long 
recognize that they have an obligation not simply to give us those rights, those are in fact our rights, but instead to recognize the rights that we have and not to infringe upon those. When they infringe upon those, they have violated our civil liberties and there are consequences for that in, in lawsuits and pushing back against them and creating laws that protect the rights of the people, oftentimes recognized through our Supreme Court justices. And so today, we understand that the state should contend for the rights of all people. But this is where the pro-choice movement begins to muddy the waters because they begin to ask, well, what is a person? Who is a person? Is the baby in the womb really a person? They are just a so-called clump of cells. One legislator a few years ago described a miscarriage, for instance, and I'm sorry, I do not want to trigger anybody who's listening to this. And so if this is a sensitive topic to you, you might want to just skip ahead 20 seconds. But she described a miscarriage as a mess on a napkin. This is the way, this is the way that pro-choice advocates have established their beliefs or conveyed their beliefs about the body in the womb, that it is a body that is distinct from personhood. But there's a problem with this. To maintain this value is to to abandon anything that we know to be true about the biological reality that a that a human being is uh, from conception until natural death is certainly just a person at a various at various stages of human development. We would not look at, for instance, a a bird or any other kind of creature in an egg and say, "Well, that is not a bird. We don't know what it is. It is just some other sort of being until it hatches." No, it is simply a bird at a particular stage of development. And a baby in the womb is a person at a particular stage of human development. But today we have allowed the pro-choice movement to adopt a secular ideology wherein there is a distinction between personhood and the biological person. This is not something that can be ascertained through scientific inquiry. It is not something that... Um, that somebody from the pro-choice movement can say, this is definitely a fact. Instead, it is something that they impose upon the baby in the womb, and many in our society simply nod along. They say, well, there must be some distinction between the two, or they say, we don't know when a baby in the womb becomes a person. And since we don't know, we have to allow people to have the so-called right to kill the baby in the womb. But I call this the most immoral ga gamble. Think about this. If you don't know when the baby in the womb becomes a person, and so you don't know when killing the baby, he or she in the womb would violate that individual's rights if there were a line, if it weren't at the moment of conception, if that's the assumption that one might have and you would say, well, we don't know when that point is, wouldn't you err on the side of protecting human life? Wouldn't you want to err on the side of ensuring that you are not killing a baby in the womb? In the pro-choice movement, this gamble is one that people are willing to make and to encourage and to prop up as a social good. Second, the state must not endorse a secular worldview and impose it upon the person in the womb. Just because the secular ideologist maintains this sort of belief system does not mean that we need to allow the slaughter of babies in the womb so as to appease it or to appease adults and to make them feel uh, as though they are being, uh, as though their worldview is being recognized and approved by culture at large, the state is to take a a neutral 
uh, posturing towards all worldviews. What we simply recognize is a biological reality, that the baby in the womb is a person at a particular stage of human development. This is a human being, and so we ought to protect human life so in as we, so far as we are able to do so. To do anything beyond that is to impose that secular worldview upon the person in the womb, which results in his or her death, untimely death at the hands of an ideology that is being forced upon it. Third, the state should contend for the safety and welfare of children. It ought to. We ought to protect children. We ought to protect the most vulnerable among us. In our society, this is the value that we ought to maintain. And we saw this even during the COVID-19 pandemic, where a lot of discussions were held regarding who is the most at risk. What can we do to protect them? And people were willing to go to great lengths even to restrict, restrict their personal liberty if they thought that there was a chance that they might protect somebody who is a vulnerable adult. Would we not do the same for vulnerable children in the womb? Fourth, the state should provide a robust definition for what a woman's health, quote-unquote, is uh, to a, if we're going to allow the destruction of human life on the basis of it. When we read uh, in uh, Article B or Letter B, it says, however, abortion may be prohibited after fetal viability. By the way, pro-life advocates and those who contend for life, uh, we ought to strive for a robust definition of of fetal viability. I'll continue on that in just a few minutes. It says, but in no case may such an abortion be prohibited if it is, if in the professional judgment of the pregnant patient's treating physician, it is necessary to protect the pregnant patient's life or health. Now, if we're talking about life, that is one matter. When we're talking about health and there is no definition provided for it, what are we allowing the slaughter of the person in the womb to be contingent upon? What is health? Is that, is a, is that a health setback? Is that somebody's body, a woman's body, uh, having difficulty carrying the baby in the womb? Is it a mental health or emotional health concern that would allow the termination of the baby in the womb? What is the definition of health? Well, no such definition is provided by the state, and I believe that allows or it opens the door for great moral evil to occur. Any treating physician can justify abortion, the slaughter of the baby in the womb, on whatever definition for health they would so choose to provide. This is disturbing, and it ought to be for people on both sides of the aisle. If we're going to talk about a state that wants to protect children, that desires to protect the most vulnerable among us, if we are not going to allow a secular ideology to be forced upon our society, and especially not upon the baby in the womb, then we ought not allow a vague terms such as health to be propped up as the justification for actions such as this. Not if we are going to be serious people, morally serious people. Fifth, if the state is to use viability as the determinant, it should have the courage to establish objective standards. Again, no such standard is provided. In letter C, it says, as used in this section, fetal viability means the point in a pregnancy when, in the professional judgment, in the professional judgment of the pregnant patient's treating physician, 
the fetus has a significant likelihood of survival outside the uterus with reasonable measures. This is determined on a case-by-case -case basis. This is politicians wanting to wash their hands of any culpability. It is the politician who drafted this and those who co-signed it not wanting to get their hands dirty and trying to separate themselves and the consequences for decisions to, to kill a baby within the womb. Instead, fetal viability can mean whatever the doctor in their professional judgment, his or her professional judgment, determines fetal viability to mean. When is the baby able to survive outside of the womb? What are considered to be reasonable measures? Is being placed on a breathing machine, is that a reasonable measure? Is the ability to survive uh, it, with other medical care, even if that meant being in the NICU unit for perhaps two or three months, is that considered a reasonable measure? Well, I trust it depends upon the doctor who is making that determination and certainly in part due to the influence of the patient and their worldview assumptions as well. Why would we allow such vague policies to outline whether or not it is acceptable to kill a baby within the womb? I want to pause for just a moment and I want to read something to you. When we talk about how serious we consider a topic as it relates to public policy, and the lengths we are willing to go to ensure that there are clear objectives, that there are standards as it relates to uh, implementing a public policy, especially as it relates to public health. I'm going to read from you to you from the Ohio Public of, or I'm sorry, the Ohio Department of Health, and this article is called "Time." It is titled "Time as a Public Health Control for Cut Tomatoes." This is the question that the article seeks to answer. Is it necessary to chill whole tomatoes at 41 degrees or less before slicing or cutting them if an establishment wishes to use time as a public health control, TPHC, for the immediate room temperature display or holding of the cut tomatoes? Discussion and rationale. Ohio Administrative Code 3717-1-03.4 one, time as a public health control requires ready-to-eat, potentially hazardous food, time temperature control for safety food to be 41 degrees or less before it is removed from temperature control for the purpose of using time alone as a public health control to hold or display the food. The Ohio Uniform Food Safety Code also requires a written procedure to be available to the regulatory authority that details the method of compliance and marking system used to track the time, four-hour maximum, between removing the food from temperature control and its consumption or discarding. However, the code does not specifically address the appropriate starting temperature when using time as a public health control for produce such as tomatoes that becomes PHF, TCS foods only upon cutting or slicing them. The United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA, conducted in-house studies to determine if there is likely to be a significant difference in the growth of pathogens in tomatoes that start at an ambient temperature 72 degrees Fahrenheit at the time of cutting versus those that are fully refrigerated at 41 degrees Fahrenheit at the time of cutting. Data from these studies suggests that the product temperature at the time of cutting did not significantly affect the growth of representative bacteria in the cut inoculated tomatoes when they are subsequently displayed or held at room temperature. The storage temperature at which the cut tomatoes were held after inoculation appears to be the most important factor affecting pathogen growth. When a room temperature 
or tomato is sliced or otherwise cut, any salmonella on the outside of the fruit or from the knife, other equipment, or the food employee doing the cutting may be inoculated into the flesh of the tomato. Data suggests the tomato will support the growth of this organism only after a lag phase during which the contaminating cells of salmonella adapt to the fleshy tissue and begin to metabolize. Now, I'm going to pause there in our reading because I don't want to bore you, and I hope that you're getting the point. As the state of Ohio understands public health and safety as it pertains to cutting tomatoes and putting them out on ready-to-eat food, they understand that it is important to provide objective criteria. They don't simply leave the matter up to the discretion of the cook or to the food establishment to say, you know what, we are a food professional, we are those in food safety, and so we get to make that decision ourselves. No, they understand that because it is a matter of grave public health and safety, they have to provide specific criteria, including definitions, time-sensitive information. They describe the regulatory authorities at play here. But as it relates to the death of babies in the womb, we find language that simply says reasonable measures, basically at the discretion or in the professional judgment of the pregnant patient's treating physician. And that is it. We need to be morally serious people. We should seek representatives in our government who care about matters such as human life more than they care about sliced tomatoes. As God's people, when we reflect upon issues like this, we do not need to be alarmed. We do not need, although we are deeply concerned and we are grieved, we do not need to be fearful. As God's people, we understand uh, how uh, how truth prevails at the end. We understand that we live in a fallen world where great evils occur, and sometimes even through our governments, and sometimes society at large endorses such evil. And yet as God's people, we speak truth about those. We speak the truth about secular ideologies. We contend for legislation that will protect the sanctity of life. Until those sort of laws are established, we continue to do our best to communicate what is true, to live out uh, our lives in a way that demonstrates our love for our neighbor that protects the most vulnerable among us from conception until natural death. May we be found consistent and faithful on these causes. Our second article today, to change gears dramatically, our second article today comes to us from churchanswers.com, and it is a blog written by Sam Rayner. Uh, his name might be pronounced Rainier. Uh, it makes a number of shocking statements. And so I'm going to read a little bit of these statements or a few of these statements. It's actually not that long of an article, but it says church health will not improve until ongoing evangelism returns. A recent Church Answers poll found that only 1% of churches have an ongoing evangelist evangelism effort. This finding corroborated a more extensive longitudinal study we've been conducting since 1996, in which the lowest church health score across denominations is in the category of evangelism. They say this trend is alarming and it is getting worse. We are seeing it across denominational lines and in non-denominational churches. I'm going to skip over to the second page of this article. It says, uh, the opportunity. People are still receptive to faith conversations. Surprisingly, it reads, many people are not current. Many people not currently attending a church are receptive to going. The reason they do 
they do not is that they have yet to be invited. If invited and accompanied, 82% of the unchurched are open to attending church with a friend or acquaintance. <clears throat> Skipping down, it says, additionally, most unchurched would like to develop a real and sincere relationship with a Christian. Our neighbors who do not attend a church value relationships that go beyond a superficial wave and hello when we pass by them on walks through the neighborhood. The last paragraph I'm going to read. It says, creating a culture of ongoing evangelism is the best way to regain church health. What if one thing could resolve most problems in every church? A renewed focus on evangelism is the single greatest way to regain church health. The healthiest churches inwardly are the ones most focused outwardly. I wish I could yell amen to the writer of this article as he penned those words, or typed them more likely. Uh, but there are a few things that I want to say about this article as we follow up on this theme of one, both in issue one and then now, considering the one thing that most churches could do that would provide health or stability to a local church. The first is that it is certainly true that a de-emphasis on evangelism creates weaker, inwardly focused, divisive churches. This is necessarily the case. Why is this necessarily the case? Because we as believers were called for a purpose. We were saved for a purpose. There's a reason that we were not immediately transported to heaven when we responded in saving faith to the gospel message. The Lord has left us here and we have a purpose. We have a mission to reach uh, the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the Lord might be glorified through those responding in saving faith. This is a great opportunity. It is an exciting mission. This is the great commission that has been given to the church. And so when we are not faithful in the great commission, if we are not obedient to God's word in this way, a specific command that Jesus gave, he told us specifically to do this. If we are not obedient in that, we are unlikely to be obedient in other areas as well. In fact, it's probably going to indicate that we are only going to be obedient in those things that are most pleasing to us or come easiest to us or cost us the least. But that is hardly obedience. And so if you were to have a church full of people who are not obedient to the Lord unless they feel like it, which again is not obedience at all, what's that church going to look like? Well, it's going to look like a chaotic church. It's going to look like a body that does not have any uniform purpose, where people are going to ask, why are we even gathering together? What's the purpose of gathering together? What are we trying to accomplish? Well, we're just trying to sing songs together. We're just trying to hear somebody talk at us for 40 minutes every week. That's what we're trying to do. That's not that appealing, is it? The opposite, however, is that we are being equipped for a great mission. We are glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. We are encouraged in that mission. We are walking this road together. We are building one another up in the faith. As the body grows and it builds itself up in love, it increasingly fulfills the purpose for which it is called, namely to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, to help each person arrive at spiritual maturity and to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But see, I believe, and this is the second, that the de-emphasis uh, or the de-emphasis of evangelism is symptomatic. Uh, this is not something that is creating weak churches. Weak churches are de-emphasizing evangelism. Because when we are not evangelistic, we are communicating what we believe to be true about God. And what we believe to be true about God in those cases is deficient. 
we are suggesting that uh, the concerns of other people, that the way that they might look at us, they might view us as strange if we talk to them about Jesus. They might view us, to put this in 1990s language, as Jesus freaks. And because of that, we don't want to be obedient. Perhaps we believe that God hasn't called us to such thing. Perhaps we believe that he won't hold us accountable for our disobedience. Perhaps we even believe that he will bless us in spite of our disobedience. Perhaps we don't have any urgency in evangelism because we don't believe that heaven and hell are very real destinations and possibilities for people. They will either spend eternity in one or the other. And so because we do not believe that, we don't take God's word literally. We do not believe it. And because we do not believe it, it results in our activity. I believe our activity or our inactivity are a direct reflection of our doctrine, of what we believe to be true about God's word, about humanity, about human nature, about sin, about the consequences of sin, and about what Jesus Christ has done for us. How dare we sing songs to the Lord about how gracious he is and how much he loves us, that while we were sinners, he chased down us. He left the 99 and he chased down the one, us, and he found us and he saved us. And we sing songs about that, but then we never go out and reach others. And we do not convey that same sort of urgency in our evangelistic efforts. Well, I don't share that today to beat anybody over the head, but instead to ask, what do we do with information like this? What do we do to increasingly be a part of a church or church is that uh, contend for the lost, that seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by having robust evangelistic programs and efforts? Well, the first, I would argue, is that we need to study scripture to better understand what God is like. We need to spend time asking, what, what breaks the Lord's heart? What is he passionate about? If I'm going to have the same values as the Lord, if I'm going to have the same priorities, what do those even look like? Does God hold us accountable? What happens when we are disobedient? Is God going to bless us in our disobedience? We ask questions like this. Second, I believe that we ought to pray evangelistically, and as we are commanded to do in 1 Thessalonians, that we do so without ceasing. If we are to pray for the lost, and I have a number of names up on my board uh, individuals who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior for whom I'm praying. But if we're going to be more faithful in praying for individuals such like such as that, if we do that, if we go through our day and we're thinking about this, there's a need, there's an urgency to reach lost souls with the gospel. Guess what? If you're thinking about something, you're going to talk about it. If you're thinking about something, it's going to come out. Think about this. You ever walk in the house and you see a look on your on your spouse's face and you know that they're thinking of something and they want to talk about it? And if you pry enough, they just talk about it. Or even if you don't, it just comes out. I'm a pretty big Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And uh, this time of the year, I find myself just naturally talking about football. So if I'm just at the grocery store or just another public space and I run into a complete stranger and we're just making small talk. You know, you talk about the weather, how's it going? It's good. And then you might see that they have an article of clothing on that indicates that they're a Steelers fan, or you just start talking about sports in general and they say who they're a fan of. I find myself in conversations about the Pittsburgh Steelers all the time. Why? Because I'm a fan and because I'm thinking about them. Unfortunately, I'm a little bit more emotionally invested in their wins and losses than I probably should be as an adult, but I am. And so 
though I hate to admit that, and because I am, uh, there might be days where I'm thinking a lot about them. They had a great win or they had a terrible loss. And so I'm thinking about them and it just comes out of my conversation with others. Well, if we're thinking about spiritual matters, we're thinking about the gospel, we're thinking about how good God is, we're thinking about his promises, we're thinking about what he's called us to do. If we're dwelling on that, we're spending time in God's word, we're reading, we're praying, it's going to overflow. We're going to find ourselves just naturally talking about that because that is the chief priority of our lives. And so we need to increasingly make it that. Third, we need to model evangelism to those entrusted to our influence. If you are somebody who has shared the gospel and you know how to share the gospel, then show others how to do that. Take people with you when you're having a cup of coffee with an unbelieving friend or family member. Show how you bridge these kind of conversations, how you get from talking about the weather and sports to talking about Jesus Christ. Help people understand what you have found to be effective, what has not worked as you've tried to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make sure that you model this for other people. The goal is not to acquire a set of skills and to be effective in sharing the gospel and then to take all of those skills and knowledge with us to the grave. The goal is to pass this information on. The fourth, and this is actually not evangelism, but it was described or discussed in the article, and that was to invite somebody to church. If 82% of people would be willing to accept our invitation if we would invite them and, that's a big and, and accompany them to the to church, if people would be willing to respond, and, and as they come to church, they're going to hear the gospel and they are going to have an opportunity to respond in saving faith, then may we be found faithful in inviting them. Everybody could do that. Everybody can invite a friend, a family member, a co-worker to come to church. I encourage you to invite somebody and to take them out to lunch afterwards. The reason for that is is a few. Uh, there's a few points to that. One, you get an opportunity to build a deeper relationship. It said in the article that people desire a deeper relationship. They want to know, are you sincere in your faith? I don't want you to be fake or shallow. I want you to be what you really are, but I hope that what you really are is, is a sincere, mature follower of Jesus Christ, or you are increasing in your obedience and fear of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're growing in maturity. So spend time with people. The second is that you get a chance to unpack what they just heard about God's Word. This might be the first time somebody's ever heard the Word of God preached, the first time they've ever heard it read to them. So ask them, what do you think of that? What do you do as a result? Ask them if there's anything you can pray for them about, and then follow up with them. If you invite somebody to church, follow up with them. Share the gospel with people, follow up with them. Ask them, what did you think of the last time we talked? Were there any questions that you had? Do you have any questions about the Bible? Do you have any questions about what's happening in the world today from God's Word? I would be happy to answer those. Sometimes we can bridge gaps, and we, we might not be able to just jump into the Romans road with somebody, but sometimes we can ask people if we can pray for them. Most people, I have found, are receptive to prayer as they're going through uh, difficulties, trials, tribulations, even in times of joy. Can I, pray, can I pray a prayer of blessing over you in this great season? Let's step forward in those ways. Let's spend time in prayer, in Bible reading. Let's be faithful in obedience. Let's build relationships with our lost family members and friends, not fake ones, but authentic, deep relationships. Let's use those to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I look forward to talking about more topics such as these next week when we return to the podcast. May the Lord bless you.